0: Welcome back to The Cypher, a series of conversations with creators from the Black Diaspora who are leaning into their roots to create new spaces for all of us. I'm your host, Christabel Nsiabwadi. The song you're hearing is by my guests on this episode. The song is called Cassandra and the band is Freetown Collective, a neo-folk urban contemporary band from trinidad and tobago i'm joined by its co-founders lou Lyons and muhammad muakil these musicians have dedicated themselves to spreading messages of dignity caribbean self-determinism and freedom through a combination of instruments melody and rhythm their work has been remixed by the likes of major laser and showtech and in 2017 i am told the band reached 20 million views on youtube Lyons and Muakil have toured internationally and have connected with the band's Caribbean diaspora and other global audiences. Now, they were motivated to connect with these global audiences essentially because of their dissatisfaction with the representation of their community. So join me now to discover how the band got together... And yes, we'll listen to some of their music too. And we'll also talk about how Freetown Collective has carried out that mission of shifting perceptions of the Caribbean diaspora. Lou Lyons and Mohamed Muwakil, thank you so much for joining me on the show today.
1: Thank you for having us.
2: Pleasure to be here.
0: Excellent. So before we jump into the music, I talked about um, this dissatisfaction that spurred your, your, your desire to travel. Can you talk a little bit about that? And as you do that, let everybody know where you are talking to me from today.
2: Uh, we are coming to you from the central part of Trinidad. It's very sunny this afternoon after a couple of days of rain. Uh, both Muhammad and I are from very, I would say, militant communities uh, where morality and uh, religious identity was a very big part of our upbringing. And I think travel wasn't very important for parents. Uh, providing was was one of the priorities coming from under slash working class families. And so we had we experienced both sides of our Caribbean world. One where our parents had to work to provide a future that they envisioned for us, and in society itself, we saw not only how we were perceived in our own society, but how the world perceived the Caribbean. And those things weren't very congruent all the time. So growing up with our own version of self-pride and identity and choosing art as the voice to to communicate who we are, we decided that we would like to add to that conversation, add to that global narrative of who Caribbean, young, 21st century Black men are.
0: All right. That's packed, that's jam packed full of stuff, so number one, you said militant, and I'm not gonna lie when you said militant i was my brain went which way militant, and then what I think what you meant by that was strict parents um no <laughs> okay, what do you mean
1: <laughs> in my particular case, it actually meant militant um in nineteen ninety. My dad was a part of a group of 114 Muslim men who overthrew the country. Ooh, okay. um, so when we say and and his father was involved in the 1970 revolution as well. So when we say militant, it's not a um yeah, it's not a metaphor for anything. <laughs>
0: it's, <laughs> it's literal.
1: We grew up in we grew up in families and we were raised and trained in in, in you know in in different ways of being, <laughs> to put it to put it lightly. Um So, yes, if we address any militant aspect, but also, yes, strict. So obviously, you know, if it's that militant, then it's also going to be strict.
0: That that is um, that's major. And I'm going to tell you why is because I think our perceptions of people from Trinidad and Tobago, even if you know a little piece of the history, which I'm one of those people who knows a little piece of the history, not a lot. Right. That's not the first place you go to. Right because of course, everyone goes, carnival,, mm-hmm. walk up, and all of that, and you're like yeah our 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 childhoods were not that, so immediately, yep. I see a tension there in terms of the country that you are from, and also Trinidad, from my understanding, is a highly diverse country, and with that that comes a lot of com- exactly um they're pointing to each other because we have different shades we have different parts of the of uh, the melanated spectrum that they're pointing to right but that also brings up a co- you know lots of complications right in terms of who can speak to who i've been to trinidad once and th- i was blown away by the colorism by the classism or like who's supposed to talk to to, to who and how and you can imagine me in that space with this yes. accent I had a lot of fun let's put it that way i confused a lot of people yes um but i say all of that to be um so you you had a global mindset nevertheless as a result of that because of that because of that foundation tell us more about what that foundation taught you you, you alluded to that and i'm talking about the global mindset specifically what was what really set sunk in for you
1: i think both of us um while, yes, we had a very militant background, we both came from backgrounds that um, focus on education heavily. So we were both readers from a very young age. We read a lot. You know, when we talk, both of us talk about our early childhood and our adolescence. And even now, but more so back then, we read a lot. You know, it was our escape. Um, so we would, you know, we would be lost in books for for months. Just lost in, in books. Um because sometimes the home situation wasn't ideal. And so we would lose ourselves and we would dream about the, the world, you know, that existed outside of what we knew. And we knew that once we got to an age where we could explore on our own, what we wanted to do was to see what was out there. Because it, it wasn't enough. He was born in Tobago, I was born in Trinidad, both to very closed communities. And at a real young age, I think the both of us felt, well, this is not this is not it. This can't be the be-all and end-all of my life, I want more,
0: Mm. you know? What books did you read? What were the books that helped you escape?
1: The very first, my my grandfather, God rest his soul, he um, he subscribed to National Geographic for me from like the age of three. So before I could even read, I remember being very young and being very frustrated because I could see the pictures, but I couldn't understand what these scribblings were, the words, right? (laughs) I knew that they were about the pictures, but I couldn't, you know? But those things, man, they just, yeah, I was seeing things every month that did not exist in my world. And I wanted to know more about those things
2: and those people and those cultures, you know? Mm -hmm. And my father subscribed to Reader's Digest. So it's it's
0: (laughs) the same thing. thing.
2: Yeah. And also uh, because of my father's interest in the global story of black existence, I read a lot of black books
0: one of my earliest
2: memories would have been the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm. And that that changed my my appreciation of blackness on a whole from a very young age.
0: Well, Lou, because um this is Lou who is speaking about um reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, you're reading about a very it's an African American experience as well, right? Yeah. So how did you connect to that as well as as not African-American kids who are looking at National Geographic, which I'm chuckling because you know that that magazine has a particular <laughs> reputation, but that was the magazine that brought you out of your worlds. And then you have um, um, the autobiography of Malcolm X. What did that tell you? I was,
1: I was far more interested in the natural part of National Geographic than the geopolitics at the time, obviously, because I'm a child. I don't understand yeah. that they are that they are viewing Africa in a certain way and all that. So as I got older, I understood that the images I was seeing coming out of Africa and all that stuff, as I got older, my father and my mother and people around me let me know, thankfully, because I came from that militant background, that a lot of what I was being shown wasn't necessarily the truth. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of that was clarified at a young age. But just the images, you know, um, as a child, you look around and, you know, for me in the Caribbean, the scenes are the same. It's the sea, it's the mountains, it's... but then you open a book and you see a gorilla for the first time. You open your book and you see a, a crocodile for the first time or a wildebeest migration or the savannas or the Maasai or, you know, and it's all of these things where you realize, oh, I don't exist on this planet alone. The stories I've been told are the only stories I want to hear more. And I want people to know what my story is because if these stories are being misrepresented or not being told fully, then you know, man, what about mine? I just live on a dot.
0: Sorry, Lou, did you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, for me, my my father. It was mostly my father, doing this. He he took the time to curate this entire story of black existence. That wasn't all. That wasn't only linked to the books, but also the music, because he was an avid vinyl collector of soul music. So when I would hear the pain of Billie Holiday, he would explain that the 1970s Black Power uh, uprising in Trinidad was linked to the civil rights movement. So what I would read in, um, in the autobiography of Malcolm X, he would make these linkages to what motivated a Trinidadian like Kwame Ture to write the books that he wrote that eventually got him (laughs) expelled from the country and seeking refuge. And he just found a way to make the black experience very cohesive. So it wasn't just me in the Caribbean thinking about what's happening across there. It was one black experience in
0: my mind. You're talking about connection, right? Ultimately. Mm -hmm. And when I'm listening to both of you, I hear, um, and forgive me if 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 this is incorrect or if it's getting a little too close. Two lonely kids who were seeking something elsewhere.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Two absolute. I think that one of the things that characterises the both of us to this day is that um, the way that we view the world is very different to the people that we grew up around, the people immediately close to us. We had to. We had to. We had to firstly create our own world in our own minds and then expand that world into the actual world and exist in the world that we expanded. And that really is what Freeton ended up being. This idea that there is a place for you, but you have to expand what's already in your mind and make
0: space in the world for yourself, you know, because it doesn't or it didn't exist for us in that way. You both sound like you knew each other as kids, but I don't think that's the case, is it? When did you meet?
2: Centuries ago.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, you know, when did you meet again?
1: (laughs) Um, We would have met again in 2005, Mm. the first time. I was hosting an open mic, I wasn't doing music at the time. Um, And he walked in, he performed, and immediately, you know, something clicked, and we stood up and we spoke for the entire night. Like, we practically ignored the event, we spoke. And then he disappeared for like four years. I didn't see him any, again. And then I went to Tobago to perform. He was, he was still living in Tobago at the time, I believe. Or he was there at the time. And um, I performed in Tobago. And when I was finished performing, this person came up and took off this Ethiopian cross that he had on his neck, tied on a, um, a red, gold and green shoelace, and put it around my neck. And he was like, you're that guy. I was like, you're that guy. And I mean, since that day, that's that's it. I mean, after that time, one year later, about a year later, we forced it off. Yeah. And
0: it's now Amazing. Yeah. No, but you know what I mean? Like people people like freak out and use it, but it is like you you your spirits like you said, you met centuries ago. Yeah, I get it. So what were you yeah. doing at yeah. the time when you were when you met and then you decided to form Freetown Collective? What were your career paths? Were you were you were you um, fulfilling your dream or were you doing what society said you should do?
2: We were doing what society said
0: we should do. <laughs> All right. So, Lou, what were you doing? I was in law school at the time. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, And I started off
1: trying to be a civil engineer.
0: <laughs> How did that go? Um... <laughs> well, as you see, it's always So you... So tell me about that moment when you started Freetown Collective. What, what was the moment where you go, we've got, we got to do this? It's, mm. actually, it's actually, well, there's actually
1: two moments, but the moment moment is actually funny because there was this exchange student in Trinidad. His name was Simon. 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 Si, I don't know, his, his, his music name now is Simon. And he was just white boy, right? And at the time he was like, yo, I make beats, but I didn't take him very seriously. <laughs> And he sent me his website. We went on the website, and there was this beat called The Queen of the Universe, right? And it was a sample from... um, Jimmy Cliff. Jimmy Cliff.
3: You're the queen of the
1: universe, but made to feel the worst, right? And it had these horns. And we came together, and we wrote a song called Mama Africa. And when we wrote Mama Africa, we had... I had another song that he had come on. So we had one song, and then we wrote Mama Africa. And when we started performing Mama Africa in the open mics and the response we were getting from our community, we were like, okay, okay, you know? And then for me personally, there was a note in Mama Africa that I hit that I, I mean, I wasn't singing all the time, but I hit this note and I felt like, wow,
2: okay, 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 okay. Maybe, maybe there's something here, you know? And then we got got an opportunity to, with just two songs, we got an opportunity to travel to London to do a show. And we said, who would be so stupid to book <laughs> to, to book some fellas with just two songs? But we took the opportunity. And when that trip was wrapping up, I had just graduated from law school. Uh, so we we are here thinking about what we were going to go back home to Trinidad to do. And I remember it was, it was an afternoon on the bank of the Thames feeling cold and we looked at each other and we said, well, we can't go back to life. Like this is something here. We we need to see this through. And we we made a promise to each other that when we got back, he was going to take the next six months and work on his voice. And I would take the next six months and learn to play the guitar better. And that was it. We did. I, mean, I think we, at that time, we met every day. Every yeah,
1: single day every we single would day. meet. And for, we would be there for like 12, 15 hours every day, just around each other, around each other all the time because we felt like, you know, we felt like we were behind a little bit. Like, okay, we have to, we have some work to do, you know? But um, the audacity of belief, I think, for us, it's like it goes back to what I said about creating that world. We didn't see our own reflection in the music. It's just like you said, Trinidad is known for suka happy music, you know? But our stories aren't solely happy, mm-hmm. you know? And I think many times that's what the world wants from us as Black people, right? They want us to give, the palatable experience. You know, we're not allowed... Uh, there was this interview with Tank where he was talking about the Sam Smith song and he was saying, if, if I, sang, stay with you, um, stay with me, oh, won't you stay with you? He was like, then it wouldn't even hit the charts. But a white person like Sam Smith sings this song and it's all over the world because Black he, he was like, our our pain and our, our love is what makes them afraid. You know? So in Trinidad too, there's a whole movement of violent music. And here's two young Black men saying, no. How about we be vulnerable? How about we sing some love songs? How about we sing songs for the future? You know, we didn't see that, and so we have endeavoured to put that into the space.
0: Mm. Well, before we before we get into that, I'm sorry, Lou, Mohammed. What you said, both of what you said was interesting. But before you scroll back, Mohammed, <laughs> you're the singer. Had you sung before? Before you decided to go up on the, on on the stage and do that? And also, Lou, what instruments do you play? And what made you decide to pick up whatever instrument it was? They're both shaking their heads at me, guys. I wish you could see this.
1: Lou is, is going to be modest, so I'll answer for him. <laughs> um, Lou has perfect pitch. Lou plays the saxophone. Lou plays the clarinet. Lou plays the piano. Lou plays the guitar. I mean, he is—he he's not completely adept at all of those things, right? So he'll probably be like, right, listen, don't put me on the spot. But he can handle himself. Um and that has that has molded like the sound a lot of what of what we've done. Lou is also a singer. We're both lead singers in the band. Um I have just assumed a much more lead role
2: in terms of the singing. Um but yeah. Okay. And he didn't sing before. Well, he had he had one opportunity to sing, and it was definitely not the direction he wanted to go in. No. And before that, there were attempts to convince him that he did not have a singer's voice.
0: Ooh, yeah, why am I why am I sounding surprised though? Doesn't it happen all the time?
1: It's the story. It's the story. It's mm. the story.
0: Yeah, yeah. I want to take um, some time then, and maybe we should uh, take a listen to Red Eye, Red Eye, which is one of your songs. So let's throw over to Red Eye, and then when we take a listen, we're going to come back and talk about that song.
3: Heartbreak. me tell her.
0: was red eye guys what was that song about i mean you made me cry it was about someone who's crying it's a heartbreak
1: i fell in love when i was 11 (laughs) as we all do as we all do i fell in love when i was 11 um and that that story stretched itself probably for the next uh 13 or 14 years of my life and that song is about the day that she was leaving the country yeah basically she she left the country right after we sat um our high school exams, CXC exams, and she went to live in the States. So most of the relationship was a kind of a long-distance relationship. And um, yeah, the song is about that.
0: I think this is such a great example of vulnerability. Why is that so important to you?
2: Our fathers were hard men. Mm. Life required them to be very tough, very self-reliant, self-sufficient and providing. But as their sons we would see these glimmers in their character of very loving men, men who were overcome by compassion. And we felt it, but we also know that the way they grew up, they didn't have the vocabulary to express it. So there were times when we would want to lean on our fathers to say what we knew they were feeling, but they just couldn't. And if we are to become parents ourselves, and to be the new men in our spaces, we can't. We can't have the same limitations of our fathers. Mm. We have to verbalize and give action to the words that they felt in, in their hearts. That we now have the gentleness and and we have the the courage to reapproach masculinity with new eyes mm. in this twenty-first century, and say, well, we would like to. Approach our masculinity with a bit more gentleness, a bit more compassion, a bit more softness, but still maintaining that, you know, we are here to protect and to provide. But the the two are not mutually exclusive.
0: How did it feel being the child of these men who were hard, but who were sensitive and soft at the Mm -hmm. same time as their children? How did you feel about that?
2: At times it was conflicting. It was conflicting, confusing, because of course we got the softness and the gentleness from our mothers. But there were things that we just couldn't speak to our mothers about. And we wish that we had that kind of rapport with our fathers to broach these kinds of conversations. But we also knew that there was a wall there, a wall that they needed to put up for their survival. And maybe life didn't give them enough time. Also, build a gateway in that wall to let us in and let some emotions out. So now I could empathize and, and, and really feel some sympathy for our fathers. But at the time, growing up, it caused it caused some emotional confusion for sure. Yeah. In my case, you know, my father was a very religious
1: man. You know, Islam, and he was um, also an imam. So I think that he was trying to guide me in a religious way and not always give me the reality of life. So he would say, this is what you should do. But then there was what he was doing. And I would come up against some of these actual ways of living, right? Because someone could say, you must walk down this road. But then on the road, there's a bridge, you know, and I have to pay a toll at the bridge. Where do I get the money from? No, nobody's saying that. They just say, walk down this road. And, you know, sometimes I wish I wish that he felt that he could have been more open with me. And I understand, right? You know, I understand that 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 there are difficult things. But especially as I became a young man and I entered into my early 20s and mid-20s, I wish that he felt that he could have been more honest. And so we are trying to be here saying there are, there's often this view of men who present themselves as virtuous that they don't encounter the darkness in themselves, or that they are always winning over it. And Lou has a podcast called Full Disclosure in which he talks about it all the time, right? And that's how we have been trying to live, to open up ourselves completely, not just in a way that might look like virtual signaling, like, you know, I, hey, this is righteousness. And this, right. like, if you listen to our music, we talk about our frailty because we want people to understand that you don't have to be a superhero to walk path of living a good life or to be good to people just be a human being you know and you will fall you will rise but that's okay
0: how and you preempted me i wanted to ask how you explored that in life because what you're saying is such a loving thing about how you're thinking about your dad they're very loving things that you said and i can only imagine that that pathway would have been hard because kids and parents always clashing but what you're saying is so loving right, in, in this particular moment. But at the same time, you're also, both of you are having to unlearn things in order to break a cycle, in order to create a new path, right, in a society that doesn't necessarily value that in their men. And I'm not saying that just of Trinidad, I just mean globally of, of black men, you're supposed to be tough because the world is is, is hard on you. It's hard, The world is hard on you. And so the, the bravest thing, the most brave thing you can do, like you say, is crack yourself open and be open to the pain that will come to you because you know what that pain feels like. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? So how, how do you then, and let's, let's take it back to the music first. And then I'd love to just talk about you as individuals, if you're open to that, but with the music, how are you then exploring that? And how are people responding to the ways in which you're exploring this in your music?
3: Yeah.
1: Recently, I would say there's a song that we wrote called Oshun. And in the song it says, You are dearer to me than all the stars. So many wish but never reach. Because when I've fallen and all the world seems dark, you help me find my peace. In the still of the night, I lay listening to you breathe. People search for heaven all their lives. How lucky am I, heaven's breathing next to me. And, you know, we hear love songs all the time expressed in a certain type of way but this song was written you know of me observing my niece lying down breathing she was just born in the, in the in the pandemic time and wanting her to know as a young black girl growing up that this type of love exists that men will not always want you for your body or what there are people who will simply love you because you exist and oftentimes i feel as though that is kind of missed in the songs and in the music and in the way we carry ourselves about, someone has to prove their value to us more times, even family members, you know? Someone born of your own blood has to prove some worth or some value, you know? And I I admit that even in my own self, as I am saying this, it is still a practice that I have to purge from myself because of the world that we live in, you know? And so with the music, we try to push these types of messages, this type of softness as
2: much as we can. You know, mm. you don't have to look very far in Caribbean music and just Caribbean culture on a whole to realize that some of our dominant narratives are hyper-masculinity and hyper-sexuality. I mean, it's there in the music. It's very blatant. But what we have found is leading, choosing to lead with the vulnerability also inspires a different kind of love from our women. Mm. A love that is not codependent, that is not toxic, but also not hinged on this expectation for us to be superhuman all the time. I think um, in being vulnerable, we, we have realized that women deserve a lot more credit for their resilience and their strength and their willingness to love than society would have us believe. Society would have us believe that imperfection is frightening to women, that women will run, that women will leave. And we have found quite the opposite, that the more we express our vulnerability, is the more the conversation becomes open, the more there's a willingness to listen. And if there's a willingness to listen, there's a willingness to heal. And that's what we after, right? Healing. Mm-hmm.
0: So how have your um, audiences responded to this at home and abroad?
1: yeah so with Oshun um we just had these very beautiful moments of people messaging and saying you know I I played this song while I was giving birth people want us to sing it I mean and I don't want to skip over that like I want to I want to actually think to think about it to to be able to create music that someone would play at, at that moment such a pivotal moment in life you know um I don't know what amount of YouTube views or what award in the world or whatever could give me that satisfaction to know that someone at that moment in their life would choose to do that, to bring life into the world. There's nothing more sacred than that. Um, And we've gotten a lot of weddings because of this song. We've gotten, you know, a lot of different responses. And um, we were actually able to do a campaign called Love Over Everything. I don't know if you could see my t-shirt, but it says, hug your sons. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. Yes.
1: Yeah. So we started this campaign called Love Over Everything and we were able to um we were able to get a cooperation and people to donate towards um two organizations, one one here and one in Jamaica, um Rape Crisis Society and Eve for Life in Jamaica, who support um the survivors of domestic violence because we had found out that um the hotline here, the domestic violence hotline here had 196 people waiting to talk to our counselor. So people calling in crisis and couldn't access a counsellor, 104 of whom were children, Ugh. right? And so we we were able to use this song to bring, to bring light to that. Um,
0: um, I want to take a little break and then let's listen to Cassandra, which we played at the top of the show. I want to hear a little bit more of that. So let's take a listen to that song now.
3: Sugar, honey, sweet water, yellow, blue, queen, daughter, mama, sister, friend, lover. Oh, Mrs. Cassandra, daddy, daddy. Mrs. Cassandra, hot like a sauna, just like a mama, feed me papaya. Oh, no way, she no pushover, you should know better if you come in here. Oh, your skin glow, what I'm melanin. Oh, your bright so? I when you thinking, you make my heart go tick, 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 oh, yeah. just like her mama feed me papaya. oh shunano yeah she no push over you should know better if you come in here oh your skin glow with that melanin oh you're bright soul i wonder oh, you thinking you make my heart
0: The song you're hearing is by my guests on this episode. The song is called Cassandra and the band is called Freetown Collective, a neo-folk urban contemporary band from Trinidad and Tobago. I'm joined by its co-founders, Lou Lyons and Mohamed Muakil. It's a little bit of a term, but it's because I want to talk about this musical style of yours. Um, I understand it's been called New Calypso, which I feel like... We've had this whole conversation and i like, they call it New Calypso. But also Calypso is really is, is about telling the story of what's happening, right? That's the origins of Calypso. So where did you get the term New Calypso? Who gave that to you or did you create it yourselves?
2: Uh, there's a, a young man from Trinidad and Tobago called Jimmy October. He's doing amazing work. And somehow he, he coined that term to describe what he was doing with the music sonically. And when we had that conversation, we told him, yeah, this is brilliant. This is a description of an entire class of musicians on the island right now that's brave enough to experiment not only with the sonics, but how we dress, how we look, just the culture that we would want to present and staying authentically ourselves. Because we were born here, because we grew up here, We are calypso. We can't help that. We have to own that. But it is us. It's new. It's not what our parents would have been listening to when they were growing up. So it's new and it's Calypso. So it's
0: new Calypso. You talking about the new Calypso, I'm like, that's actually pretty smart what you did there because you're paying homage on on one hand. But with him in particular, and I'd love you to share with our audience why Lord Kitchener is, is so important, because not everyone may know.
1: Lord Kitchener was one of the most prolific songwriters. He was the melody maker. And I personally identify with him. I identify with him very, very heavily because if anyone influenced me in terms of not so much the music directly, but the feeling of knowing how grand a musician could be, and what a musician could be for their people! It was him. He was very understated. He wasn't the sparrow, you know, but he was the one who was about the music, and we respected and loved him. And you know, I remember um, when Tokoban came out. I was in secondary school. I was like in my mid-teens, and there were there were secondary school steel bands who were playing this song from this old man. He was already in his seventies and still influencing popular culture with his music because he knew how to change with the times. He understood these things and he was always so connected to his people. And for me, that's where it's at. You know what I mean? You don't have to, you don't have to leave your roots. He never left his roots, right? But he always listened to what was present while not leaving his roots, which extended 70 years in the back, you know, before we were even a thought. He never left the roots of it. And so I'm not leaving the roots either. The root is my legacy, right? All of the things that came here to make me who I am. That's my root. I don't have to leave my root because the world is somewhere else. I'm right here in the root and I'm listening to the bass lines that the world has and I'm listening to the drum patterns that the world has and I'm listening to the songwriting and then I'm taking that and adding it to my root. And that's what New Calypso is. You know, I'm not deaf to the world. I'm alive in it.
0: Because you can hear it in your music for sure because I hear everything like we talk about you. Well, I think you refer to um, um, neo-folk. Neo folk And I heard that in your music. It's very guitar heavy. And I was just like, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> that Muhammad is pointing uh, to me. me
1: but
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really guitar heavy. And it's, it's you know, if we were to kind of like lean into tropes and stuff, we'd say, oh, that's unexpected. But why not? it It speaks to that global perspective that you have, that you had at the start of your lives, that you refer to, and that you have continued to hold on to. You know who you are you've leaned into who you are, but you're also, you're um, you're a citizen of the world. So you're listening to that, but you're building your own thing. And that's, that's what I'm constantly hearing. So um, we're coming to the end of our time, unfortunately. So I'd love to know um, what is next for you guys?
2: So We are working on an album that is, it's us shifting into another gear and embracing the lessons that we've learned over the years. It's highly anticipated for us. We really want to share this music that we've been working on. The amazingness is is the the production is amazing. The songwriting has been a process that changed all of us as men. Like, we've never had this experience where, over a concentrated period of time, we sat, examined our lives, traded stories, and wrote these songs that, to this day, while we are still mixing. The songs are moving us and changing us. And yeah, more of that. And obviously, um, now that the place has opened back up, we are excited to do a lot more touring.
1: We are digging in ourselves to find these new things.
2: But we also want
1: to directly influence the Soka space. And mm-hmm. so we are actively experimenting with Soka. We are actively releasing songs into that space. We are about to release a song called Mass. I guarantee that you will be hearing about this song because we know what this song is going to do. Um, We are about to release this song called Mask. We have another song called Powerful. This song begins with an excerpt from a Marcus Garvey speech. And I know for a fact that that has never been done in Soka. So we are trying to, to push ourselves, to push our people as much as we can and create spaces where they didn't think there was space. So right now, the narrative might be that we can't express ourselves politically in soccer, that we can't express ourselves on our worldviews, that we can only talk about, you know, happiness and rum. And, and we're not saying that that can't exist. It should exist. It's a part of the festival. But on a such on something that exists on such of a massive scale in the diaspora, we should be able to express ourselves in the total gamut of our emotion. So you
0: just know? So just to be clear, you are going to include a marcus garvey quote in a soca song which for anyone who doesn't know is 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 a music from the caribbean typically played at carnival yeah known for yeah typically playing at carnival where people are in carnival having themselves a good time and they're going to
1: dance and wind down it
0: yes and and you're doing it just in time for carnival because um. am uh, at the time of recording, uh, we it's at the end of the year and carnival is literally around the corner. Correct.
1: The song will be on January fifth, and it's called "Powerful." And the Marcus Garvey quote is: "It says no race has the last word on culture and on civilization. They do not know what we are capable of. They do not know what we are thinking. For my work has only just begun."
0: Thank you for that, Mohammed. Muakil and Lou Lyons of Freetown Collective. Thank you so much for your time. Thank Thank you for having us. us.
1: Appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with the team from Freetown Collective. Follow The Cypher wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Follow The Freetown Collective on Instagram and Twitter at WeAreFreetown. Don't forget to subscribe to The Cypher podcast and tell your friends to do the same. Then sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with what the team is getting up to. You'll also find out how to access some behind-the-scenes gems from previous guests at the-Cypher, that's C-I-P-H-E-R dot com. Mo Poplar is our sound designer. The Cypher production team comprises all Cerise Small, Larissa Witcher, Aviana Kimani, and me, Christabel Insia Bwadi. Thank you so much for joining us. The Cypher is a MyLens Media production.